Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, it's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy? The business's view of the consumer has serious bottom-line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. A very good morning to you and welcome to this week's installment of Beyond Governance here at 101.9 High FM. Uh, yours truly is Nimrod Openbele. I'm always, I'm not always flying solo. I'm flanked by Craig, who's on a controller, as well as Henry Shaleke, the producer. Uh, if we, as we proceed, if you miss any of our last weekend content, not to worry. Simply visit our website, which is www.highfm.com. And share your views with us via our SMS line, which is uh, 34519. The telegram is 061-895-1019. And, you, of course, your views and thoughts are most welcome by my Twitter handle, which is at Dr. Bennett. Uh, as we proceed, last week uh, we all obviously flew to our TVs and radio stations just to listen to the president delivering his sixth democratic administration, uh, SONA, and the number of issues that came out from the particular delivery of SONA. And bear in mind that this was the last SONA under the sixth administration. And then the president took time to reflect on the achievements and successes over the past five years, uh, which, which typically were defined or, or, or involved issues such as recovery, building and renewal of the ANC itself. Obviously, a lot of people reacted differently to these kinds of deliberations from the president. And in making sense of this very important and, and complex topic, I am joined by Sangil Swana, who is the political analyst as well as a governance specialist. Without any waste of time, let's take this opportunity to welcome uh, Mr. Swana. Mr. Swana, beg your pardon. Good morning, uh, and good uh, morning again to the listeners. Thank you very much, uh, Babu Uswana. Uh, as we proceed, um, obviously painted a picture of the, the sixth administration State of the Nations address. Uh, and you as a political analyst, you probably were glued trying to uh, pick certain points uh, that you think are worth of, of, of you know, deliberating on, particularly on the size of the successes and challenges. But firstly, let's start off your overall impression of the SONA last week. Thank you so much. Uh, my overall impression of the SONA of last week is that, as expected, uh, the SONA was disappointing. It was disappointing because 30 years down the road, the package of deliverables that, especially the black majority that had been excluded from the benefits before 1994, the public goods that are offered in South Africa, black people were largely excluded from that. And a package of those goods and services we needed to see, have we now received 80%, 90% of what have we received? And so we knew before the speech, because a number of reports had been issued, showing that, in fact, the current system of governing South Africa tends to reproduce and multiply the effects of apartheid, including the Harvard report that came uh, lately. So the logic of the economy, the logic of social policy, and the systems and structures of society in South Africa tend, unfortunately, to not favor black people. 
uh, 92% of the population is negatively affected by what has happened in the past 30 years. So it was a disastrous and disappointing state of the nation address. So when you define it disastrous, out of a scale of 10, what would you give the state of the nation address? 10 being obviously super duper and 5 being in the yeah. middle from yeah. so, 1 to 10, yeah? yeah? So I would have put uh, this, this state of the nation around 10 to 20 percent. And, and if, if, if this was a student, if I was a, a teacher, a lecturer at the university, I would recommend the student for exclusion. <laughs> Hey, it was a really interesting assessment, uh, Dr. Swana. You, you, you certain this, this particular student using that metaphor would not proceed to the next grade or to the next level. Yeah, certainly what would happen when, uh, you know, uh, we deal with this, bear in mind, in my younger days, I was a student leader. So exclusions, I understand them well. Uh, there is exclusion from the faculty and there's exclusion from the university. This we called it the MR23 in those days. So I would give this one an, an MR23. In other words, there is no faculty that must accommodate you at the university. You must not be on the premises under any conditions. That's quite an interesting observation from your side, uh, 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 Babuswana. As we proceed, you know, I've picked up one of the issues that the president made mention of is the fact that they, you know, they, um, there's about 26.5 million South Africans who own social grants every month. And when you juxtapose that with the number of people who are employed and of which the number is gradually dwindling, there's something fundamental wrong with that picture. Your, your assessment, 26.5 million who are actually on handouts vis-a-vis people who are actually generating wealth, you know, for the cake to grow. But the cake is, and those that are actually, you know, making the cake to grow aren't, aren't necessarily, uh, you know, they've been reduced from time to time. And you've got this obscure picture, your assessment of the picture. The problem which attempted to be solved, and there was a measure of, a measure of success by, by 2008, 2007, there was a respectable measure of success. What was the problem? I'm trying to address the question. The problem is that by, 1994, in terms of the statistics, we had about 4.6 million unemployed. And, and with the various interventions uh, before at the Bulugwane conference, the, that long-term number, the number of people who are unemployed long-term was starting to decrease. So which means that households now were starting to, households that had been previously excluded from the economy, were starting to to be reduced. The number of people who are long-term unemployed was starting, and that's very important because as things stand in South Africa now, you have about 600,000 new entrants into the job market. Right now, you have close to 12 million unemployed, and every year you have 600,000 new ones, which means that, for instance, at some stage, Ramaphosa said he's going to create 275,000 jobs. If new people entering the market alone are already at 600,000, I'm talking the 2019 manifesto now. Uh, If you are talking now that you are going to create 275,000 jobs, meantime, new people entering the job market are 600,000. And the backlog, as we speak today, for instance, uh, is 12 million. You actually need to be creating at least 1.7 million jobs so that the new ones are totally absorbed into jobs and you start to eat into the backlog. 
So that's one of the problems that has created increasing poverty in South Africa, that the GDP growth rate is supposed to lie between 6% and 15% more or less in order to start eating into uh, that backlog. So, for instance, I've never received a cash grant from the state myself. I'm almost nearing retirement age now if I was working for the state. Because all the time I had independent means of survival, I had independent means of income. So these cash grants signal clearly that there's a lot of people and an increasing number of them who are unable to create income for themselves. So Mm -hmm. that is the problem that we're dealing with. So And and that problem has been worsening. And Mm -hmm. and I must highlight, I must highlight that there was a time under the, the, towards the end of the Mbegi regime, when the ANC was starting to succeed in reducing that backlog of unemployed people, which eventually would have reduced the, the, the load of people who are being on cash grants. People are not supposed to be on cash grants except as a temporary measure for a time being until they can get the next job. You, you hit it on a nail. Um, this is one point that I wanted to get your thoughts on. Be that is may. Let's take a quick break. We'll be back in a second. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, it's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy? The business's view of the consumer has serious bottom-line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. My name is Nimrat Nibela. I am joined by uh, Mr. Sandile Swana, who is the political analyst as well as a governance specialist. Uh, we are unpacking the State of the Nation address that was that was broadcasted uh, last week. He made some very interesting observations based on his political political eye or political thought processes, as it were. One, obviously, the issue of the grant payments, which to do. 26.5 million South Africans, and on that particular view, his his thought is that ordinarily the social grant ought to have been, I'm sure by design, they were meant to be a temporary measure, but um, you know they become a permanent feature, which makes it rather difficult. He also brought to attention the fact that the success indicator of the state of a nation is the reduction on unemployment, you know, statistics as it were. But we have now realized that in 1994, there were about 4.6 million South Africans who were unemployed. But now we, the figure has almost quadrupled. We're sitting close to about um, 40% of unemployed when using a broader definition of unemployment. And you, you are saying to us, um, during Tamambeke's era, there was a reduction of unemployed un, un, unemployed uh, folks. Take us through that particular uh, reasoning as to there was a reduction and, and link it to a particular policy position of government because there's a causality. If there's a drop of, if there's a drop of unemployment, we have to go back to a policy that is in place and say this particular policy or group of policies are actually making a dent. Your, your thoughts on that? Yes, it's uh, thank you for that because and the big word there is causality. So 
what happened, the impact, by the way, of those policies, although it was reducing over time, if you listen to the analysis done by Badili Hutla, the former statistician general, the positive impact of those policies runs up to 2011. After 2011, you start to see the brakes come on and then a reversal of the benefits that had been achieved, a reversal, a deletion. So what was the main, maybe we need to put it that way, what would have been the main cause of that growth? The, the main cause of that growth was the aggressive investment in infrastructure. So, you know, some of the analysts will say, tell you that for every shack, you know, there would be 12 houses, RTP houses built. So they were eating into the housing backlog aggressively. You will remember that it was during the early stages of this democracy that the toll roads, the refurbishment of our main highways was happening and so on and so forth. So there were, there was massive investment in infrastructure in as much as there were other mistakes that were made. For instance, they did not invest in electricity infrastructure, which is the building of power stations, but the other types of infrastructure, there was investment. So in terms of some of the questions you were raising yesterday, there is a thing called cross capital formation. When you look at the amount of money that Ramaphosa said he would want to raise is in five years time over a five year period. It is the amount of money he should have been raising a year, not in five years. <laughs> because your gross capital formation in South Africa should be about 20% of GDP. In other words, this thing is like when you have an investment that you wanted to grow, a capital amount. If you are investing, reinvesting, let's say, the interest that you are earning, then you grow even more. And that is what has been lacking in South Africa. The aggressive leading investment. Public, private sector follows the aggressive investment by government. So when the government is investing aggressively in the development of economic infrastructure in the country, the private sector follows that. They don't lead it. There's no precedent where the private sector has ever led investment in a nation and, and, and cross capital formation. So, so that was what caused this. You cannot grow jobs without investment. Can't. We will come to whether they could have done better. There are areas where they could have done better and maybe created more long-term development than what they did, but that was why it happened. Uh, this is very, these are very interesting observations. Um, one issue that you raised is the fact that um, the, the main cause of um, growth uh, in the past during Baker's era was around infrastructure, and particularly in the housing market. And you also acknowledge the fact that they failed to anticipate or focus on energy, rebuilding of the energy plant station, uh, stations. Perhaps maybe that accounts for where we are at. But the big uh, ask is, when you said the president uh, wanted to create about 6,000 jobs, which obviously pretends, surely it begins to say, what what is the overall thinking of government in as far as job creation is concerned? Because in a neoliberal political arena, the role of the state is not so much about creating jobs, but to facilitate. Ramaphosa raised about 1.3 trillion, so he says in terms of the pledges. One would have expected those pledges um, to result in job creation opportunities or opportunities for entrepreneurs so that they can follow the investment of the state. Having said that, what would have been the big challenge 
Because these pledges, first and foremost, did they materialize? If they, if they did materialize, why is it not possible that we, we, we ought to have seen reduction of unemployment over the past uh, uh, 10 years or so? So, um, so those, I, I got into trouble very quickly with this one. <laughs> because when these pledges started, I then wanted details as to saying where are these investments going to take place and each one of these investments is going to generate jobs where? Are the jobs going to be in Toyando? Are they going to be in New Brighton in PE? Where are the where is this whole thing going to happen? Two, this cap, new capital that is going to come in, the jobs that they are creating, are they jobs that were already planned before? Or are these truly, truly brand new ideas, brand new investment that have never been conceived of that are going to create new jobs that we've never heard of before? Because the problem we have is that you need, at the time I said, you need to create at least 2.5 million new jobs in new businesses, right? Because you have a backlog. And once I raised that, PwC had published something about it. I wrote and I also asked, I mean, I used to correspond at the time with Dumas Kubul and, and so on. Nobody came up to say this is the thing. But the reality is that we can then look at the results in any event. So that figure that you've mentioned, to my estimation, that figure should have been per year. The 1.3 or 1.5 trillion should have been per year, not per, per five-year period. Two, if you look at those so-called pledges, companies were extracting from their existing business plans to say they will do this. But again, government was not saying, if I'm raising 1.5 trillion from the, from the pub, private sector, my own contribution will be 2 trillion per year, whatever the number is, you know, <laughs> so that people follow the state. Let me make another example so that this is clear to people. In Lichtenberg, in the northwest, Clover disinvested there. And why did Clover disinvest? Because of the infrastructure from the state was no longer there to support the type of business they were running. So water was no longer reliable. Electricity was no longer reliable. The roads and transport were no longer reliable. So they had to find a city that could sustain that type of, of business. So you cannot expect people to come and invest in your local area in any part of the country. And then they become the municipality of that area. And that is the problem that has been created. Secondly, and Mbege acknowledged this himself, and, and we do need to talk about this openly and sincerely, is that people who attract investment, uh, I've listened carefully to what the guys in Malaysia have said about this, and even in Singapore and the Philippines, um, the type of industry you want to expand, you build the human capital for it. So if you are going to expand in the dairy industry, for instance, then you must have a surplus of people who are skilled in all aspects of dairy. But listen to this. This is an, a short piece from an article written in 25 October 2017. It says, there was a higher proportion of black students successfully graduating from South African universities during apartheid than there is today. In 1975, 15% of black students successfully graduated. In 2016, that figure had dropped to 5%. In contrast, the number of white graduates had increased slightly during the same period. The sober data was released by Padili Hood, a South African Statistician General. This was in, uh, uh, in October 
uh, that year. So, the thing that Mbeki acknowledged, now this is another dimension of the problem. What has happened in the democratic period is that blacks have increased in the unskilled category of the labor market. Even those who are employed are in the lowest levels of jobs because the amount of skilling in the black, whether it's artisanship, any type of skilling, black people in the democratic era moved out of skilling. skilling. Uh, And that is also a function of saying, as the population grows, the number of graduates, the number of graduates need to increase far ahead of the population growth if we are going to be competitive. So black people are earning smaller and smaller salaries, occupying lower and lower positions. So the capital, the human capital to lift the 92% of the population is not being formed. (laughs) Over and above the lack of financial capital that needed to be invested and the state needed to lead that investment (laughs) in both categories. Very interesting insights and observations. Let's take a quick break. We'll revert back to you. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, it's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy? The business's view of the consumer has serious bottom-line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governments. I'm having a very fascinating conversation with, with Sandy Leswana, who is the political analyst as well as governance specialist. Before we took that particular break, um, he made a very interesting observation as to why, um, you know, business or why is the, why the, the, the economy is not growing as it should. A uh, case in point uh, is the Luxembourg. Uh, you might recall that Luxembourg Clover disinvested in Luxembourg purely because water was uh, adequately supplied, let alone electricity and obviously the road infrastructure and these are main responsibilities of government so they had to disinvest from a relatively poor environment and and which have meant high high unemployment from from that particular area another observation that he has made has to do with the high proportion of black graduates who are unskilled obviously these are structural issues you have in so many people that come from your Tibet colleges your university colleges but the the amount of skill the skill force that is required by the economy there there's no a, a a sound relationship so these are very interesting observations that uh, Sandile has made as we proceed the other issue that the state of the nation unpacked which appear to be quite controversial is the national health insurance uh, my question first and foremost your take on the NHI in the context of the state which does not have money this week if not last week throughout a number of, of radio stations and newspapers we, we, we noted sadly that there's close to 100,000 medical practitioners, doctors, uh, who are just languishing on the outskirts of the economy because there's not enough money for them to be employed. There's not enough money, there's not enough budget that has been set aside to put those particular doctors to use. And your take on that? First of all, you must accept that uh, the cause of poverty in any nation because of lack of finance in any nation, lack of money and wealth, is not what is physically available in that nation. It is 
the intellectual capacities of the leaders of that nation. So the, the money is a matter of the mind, how you think. So nations like Japan build cars. They, they do all sorts of, with no mines, no real minerals, nothing. They use their brains to get all the resources from everybody else and create higher value. So what you don't have and what you will continue not to have as a nation is determined by your mind, the quality of your mind. And the most important mind is the mind of the data, starting with the state president. So let's then go into details. So my view is that I do not subscribe to the view that in South Africa there is no money. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't subscribe to that view. And, and we can discuss it from many angles. But I'll use one very basic angle for people to just see the brutality that we are being subjected to by the present government. I have had a direct face-to-face meeting with documents on the desk between us, between me and, at the time, the acting chief procurement officer of South Africa at National Treasury in South Africa. The documents that were in front of us were dealing with various categories of expenditure by government, by the state. There were categories of expenditure where the wastage would have been 40%. Wastage, money that is wasted. Others, 15%. So when I totaled up the sums of, of wastage, in other words, I'm not saying people must buy something different. You, you, you're still going to fly business class. you find that from SAA, MTN could buy a ticket to Cape Town, let's say for 1,000 rand. The state would pay for exactly the same ticket, 3,000 rand. So there was a lot of non-value adding procurement, which is still continuing today, which is why today... For all these years, you've never had it. Since they fired Kenneth or discontinued Kenneth Brown, we've not had a, a chief procurement officer in South Africa. But cut a long story short, I calculated that there's about 12 billion rands a month that is being wasted in procurement. Just wasted, not buying anything that is beneficial to the nation. Wasted. And this is calculated, right? Maybe you can be conservative and say it's about 6 billion rands a month. That's a lot of money. At the time when I did these calculations, Zuma was being crucified for wanting 12 billion to pay for the students' education, free education. They were short of 12, which was a month's saving from the wastage that is happening. I wrote a letter to Kodongwana, Ino Kodongwana. I was assisted by Krishnaidu, who connected me to the legal advisor of the ANC, whom I knew through the, throughout the years of the struggle, to say, here's a letter. You can save 12 billion rand and give each province 1 billion per month, each province of the nine, to create, to sponsor, to, to fund SMMEs, the development of new businesses. The complexion of this economy would change immediately if we had to do that. On that very point, because it's quite a critical point, what was the response from the Treasury on the basis of your own calculation, the fact that there's so much wastage, which amounts to about 40%? What was the, the what was the response? The, I have not received. I wrote to Kotongwana as chairman of the ANC Economic Desk, quote unquote, at the time before he became before he became the the, the minister of finance, because this thing had to come from Lutuli House as a, as a as a decision first before it goes to the state. The state was sitting with the data. The treasurer knew exactly what needed to be done, but they were not getting the political will from the ANC. And what I wanted from the ANC was the political will to say this money must be rounded up and rechanneled into development. I have not received a response to that letter till today, and I still have a copy of that letter and the email, a record of the email I sent to Inokodonga. 
And I'm mentioning Krishna Idu by name because we've known each other for many years as, as comrades in this struggle. So, uh, so people then stand up and say there's a shortage of money. There is no shortage of money other than the money that is there every year, available every year, and then rechanneled to sustain the private lives of the comrades and their business associates, etc., etc. If I were just to interject there, I mean, this you're painting a very painful picture that uh, certainly. Um, and, and you know you're quite correct because I've had a number of people on the on the show, um, high-profile individuals uh, from Busa uh, Business Leadership SA, and and you know and other uh, entities of note, and they they probably pretty much concluded that there is sufficient money in the the sufficient money to address some of these issues. The, the, I'm raising the NHI because. On average, it's one of those painful things. It takes about five, six to nine years to have a medical doctor uh, qualified. And if you're sitting with, when you, look, when you look at the international ratio between a patient and a doctor, we are way, way below the mark. And yet we've got doctors who are qualified, medical doctors who are qualified, and whose expertise are not brought to bear purely because there is no money. And it obviously contradicts what your, your your position. And most of these people who are just languishing, they end up getting opportunities elsewhere. Bearing in mind that you become more and more poorer because it takes, on average, you let me know. I mean, to produce a medical doctor uh, from Vets, UCT, Natal, you probably spend it close to four, four to five hundred thousand rent, if not more, per individual. Correct. And instead Correct. of us, you know. Instead of us reaping those those benefits, we are producing a top tier medical um, uh, personalities to be used elsewhere. I mean, surely that 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 has to be an issue that causes anybody sleepless nights. Yeah. So let's deal with that. Uh, let's deal directly with the issue of NHI. The, the Congress, the people who run this country, decided to start this NHI. So this thing has been going on for very long, very very long. I have spent time talking to one of the fellows who was sent to the UK to go and study architecture of hospitals and the running of hospitals under NHI. So groups of students were being taken from different provinces by the ANC. Uh, first of all, they were trained here, got their basic training, basic degrees in South Africa, and then sent to places like the UK to learn the NHI. And they graduated with advanced degrees and came back. This particular one I was talking to, he came back, he had been chosen from the Eastern Cape, came back, having learned enthusiastic about all the things he had learned about the architecture of NHI hospitals, clinics, everything, how to run that infrastructure. When he came back to the Eastern Cape, the comrades in the Eastern Cape said, they Man, you must thank the ANC for getting this amount of education. Mm-hmm. But this thing of NHI, this is many, many years ago. It's not, it's, it's not going to happen anytime soon. And we don't have space in the Department of Health here for you. So we'll talk to the comrades at Transnet. You can go and see there whether you can get something in the technical department. They shoved him off to the railways and off you. And eventually, by the time I met him, he was in private practice as an, an architect, in private practice. After That's all right. that training. Yeah. So... The NHI on its own is not a problem. The British people who are our former colonial masters from whom we learn, we must admit that, and whom our white population likes, they run the NHI and there are times when they've run it so successfully, actually. But 
We cannot run anything, any NHI in South Africa, not because the NHI itself is a problem. There is no nation that can be built that is led by criminals and corrupt people who are emphasizing the appointment and allocation as chairman of the of the deployment committee, Ramaphosa, allocation of people who practice state capture, personally appointing them, who ruined everything else. Those people are not thinking about how to perfect the NHI, how to make it successful. They are thinking about how to steal as much money as possible. And therefore, you cannot partner with them in anything. The ones who are running the country for the time being. My goodness, that's a very, um, very sticky point that you just raised, uh, which which brings a host of other uh, issues. On that note, let's take a break. We'll be back just in a second. Beyond Governance, making sense of doing business in South Africa, is proudly sponsored by Plus 94 Research, the science of decision making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, it's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy. The business's view of the consumer has serious bottom line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision making. Welcome back. This is Beyond Governance. We are gravitating towards the end of this interesting conversation that I'm, that I'm having with Sandile Swana, who is a political analyst as well as governance um, expert. Before we took that break, you know, he was giving us his insight about why the NHI, the National Health Insurance, is likely to fail in South Africa. And key to that, one is that there is substantive, if not substantial, wastage. Okay, and we don't have the procurement. Procurement, what's the word that I'm looking for? The end in sight from a procurement point of view. And he has particularly pointed out that we lo- we're losing between six and twelve billion rings in a year. And the last point that he raised that the NHI is likely to not to succeed purely because we are led by a bunch of criminals, or if not crooks. So having said that, it raises that yet another issue. You might have picked up yesterday that the Democratic Alliance, DA, has won a case wherein they needed the, the records of of uh, Kedah deployment from the ANC. And ANC, obviously, it's dilly-dallying on that particular issue. Sandile, what would be the repercussions of the state capture, I mean, not the repercussions of um, the repercussions of Kedah deployment uh, once those records are being put to bear? Or, you know, because and one issue you raised is the fact that Cyril Ramaphosa, the, the current president, used to chair the deployment committee, which meet, which makes him one of, uh, he was complicit or one of the people that we need to level the criticism right at his doorstep. Your take on that? Before I go to the state capture quickly, I just want to, to alert you to the fact, to alert the listeners to the fact that we have a South African uh, um, infrastructure report card, which measures the standard or the state of, of the infrastructure in the country. Uh, objectively, it, it, it's run by the Institute of Civil Engineers. Now, on healthcare, this is what they say about healthcare. Hospitals, so the best score you can get is an A, the worst score you can get is an E. The hospitals are getting a D plus, clinics are getting a D, which means these two categories of infrastructure near collapse can collapse at any time. There are nearly 4,200 health facilities in South Africa, including 394 hospitals in the country, uh, in the country to, um, uh, okay, that is uh, to respond to the uh, 
um, at the time, the, the COVID-19 outbreak. Now, data on the condition of health infrastructure is difficult to obtain. However, it appears most of the provincial health departments and their associate public works department do not place enough emphasis on the maintenance of these health facilities. So, D plus or D or, or, or D. So, our infrastructure in hospitals, in the health sector, the entire 4,200 facilities are below uh, human occupancy, if you can call it that. They are at risk of collapsing at any time. So let's move on. I could say the same thing about roads and other infrastructure, and this report is produced frequently. So let's move on to the issue of the implications of this cater deployment. Firstly, the DA and the nation have now got to go face-to-face that Sir Ramaphosa was the master of allocating every crook who ran state capture in the period from uh, January 2013 uh, until he became president, I think, around 2018-2019. So, a lot of the people who are in the state who are pursuing state capture, who have been pursuing state capture, and state capture is still continuing, were placed there by Cyril. Number two, the other implication, if the records are released, it will be like setting a forest on fire. Because all these people who are smart, who are important, who occupy very senior positions, CFOs, DGs, DGGs, who even when they walk around in their communities claim that they are qualified for their jobs and they are big shots, then we will discover from the minutes that actually so-and-so was given this position whilst there were people who were more qualified and more deserving than that, that person. So it will reveal to the South Africans, including the supporters of the ANC, including black people of South Africa, that there is job reservation in South Africa, that if you are a loyal member of the ANC, you can get a job that you do not deserve, no matter how high that job is, through the deployment committee of the ANC. That a lot of South Africans, especially black South Africans, who deserve to occupy large positions of responsibility, have been denied and sidelined in the same manner that they were sidelined during apartheid. So, cadre deployment is a form of job reservation, and a form of apartheid in South Africa today, and it is impacting negatively on black people. Interesting observation indeed. As we um, move closer to um, to the end of the show, basically, you know, uh, we now understand why the ANC will defend the report or will not want to disclose uh, the report to the public, because in your view, that is yet another form of job preservation. Uh, in your own, in your own observation, you alluded to the fact that majority of people who are in government, senior government officials today, were not worthy of those particular positions. That's one, because because they they had to toe a particular line um, that obviously led to the softening of the fiscals from the state. Um, are those people so? We are likely to see, should the match, should the, should the record be put to the public, we are likely to see some names um, that that were identified in the state capture, and of which the ANC may not be keen to have those particular names revealed to the public. Is that a is that a correct assessment of your position? You see, those ones that were already identified in the state capture, we have a list of them. The ones that are of interest is to 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 discover that. So-and-so who's earning 6 million rands as the CFO of Transnet or this and the other company is was allocated. For instance, there are some of these guys like Gama, even Brian, uh, Brian Muliff, 
where it is recorded, Gamma, it was recorded that the IQ test or the, the basic acuity test that were done, where it was revealed that it can, does not deserve to be CEO at all, but he was still appointed. Brian Mulifi was appointed when there were candidates that were better qualified than him, that were more suitable than him. Then there are other people who are not even mentioned, very decent, highly respected people who occupy the most crucial positions in this country. As Mark in their S-class Mercedes Benzes and G-class and this and the other things, their names are going to appear in the minutes that these people were awarded positions they did not deserve. That is what is going to appear in those WhatsApp messages. And in the minutes, that is exactly that. There's a lot more than what Zondo has discovered. Interesting observation indeed. Um, no wonder why this matter will drag uh, uh, quite, quite for quite some time. And we, we have run out of time. And thank you very much for gracing beyond uh, governance with your presence. We certainly hope that um, we'll, we'll catch up on some of these pertinent issues because, uh, as you have correctly pointed out, that you know should the records be put through, um, it will be like setting forests. Uh, you know, uh, uh, on fire. So you can imagine, might create a lot of sleepless nights to a lot of people. Uh, once again, thank you very much for coming through. Thank you, thank you, uh, Dr. Mbele, and to the listeners of Chai FM. Thank you. Thanks a million times. Thank you very much. There, there we are. A very, very interesting insight uh, from uh, Sangile uh, Swana, who is a political analyst as well as the governance expert, giving us insights on the state of the nation's address, pertinent issues that we have touched on. Obviously, NHI being one of the biggest one. The second one being the unemployment rate, which is skyrocketing, and the other issue that we uh, uh, touched on has to do with 2.26 million South Africans who are on social grants and which the grant ought to have been a temporary measure but it has become a permanent feature uh, in this country and the other point that was quite critical that if the state does not invest in infrastructure uh, that will not allow a, a an entrepreneur to leverage on those particular uh, in, uh, investments and the, the issue obviously has to be when you compare Becky as well as uh, some of Cyril, there is very little investment that is that has happened. No wonder why. I mean, our debt to GDP ratio is hovering around seventy percent, and if and the interest rates, you know, are skyrocketing. Every loan that we get from IMF, World Bank, uh, equity partners, those loans come heavy because we are no longer invest, investment friendly. We've been downgraded uh, into junk status. We can still get access to money, but at the higher interest rate. So these are some of the issues that we, we pretty much unpacked, which are very useful. We're going to have to leave it here. Uh, until we meet again, Shalom. Beyond Governance, Making Sense of Doing Business in South Africa is proudly sponsored by Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making. Did you know that where markets are concerned, it's not easy to detect the difference between objective and subjective reality or between reality and fantasy? The business's view of the consumer has serious bottom-line implications. At Plus94 Research, we help businesses cut through the uncertainty by gathering and processing real consumer intelligence through advanced scientific research methodologies. Plus94 Research, the science of decision-making.